Hi, this is Steve Hargadon, and welcome to the Future of Education. It's Thursday, March 7th, 2013, and our special guest is Chris Marcoliano. Marcoliano. <laughs> there I go. Hi, Chris. Nicely done. Pretty good for an Irish. Well, poorly done, but but you're gonna you're gonna let me pass, I'm sure. Well, you're, you're Irish. You got to pass. Come on now. <laughs> the Future of Education is a Web 2.0 Labs project. Thanks to Mighty Bell, Menko, and Blackboard Collaborate for support. If you go to web20labs.com, you can see all the fun activities we have coming up this year. Uh, several virtual conferences. These are free events, worldwide events that are all sort of peer learning based, especially for educators. On March 28th, we have our School Leadership Summit, which is shaping up just beautifully. That's an all-day event for school leaders to present to each other. Uh, if you're going to be at the ISTE show, don't miss ISTE Unplugged, our set of crowdsourced activities, including the all-day unconference, which this year is called Hack Education with co-chair Audrey Waters. We do have the Worldwide STEM Conference coming up, the Future of Libraries Conference, the Global Education Conference, uh, and many more that we're in planning stages on. Coming up on the show uh, next week, Paul Thomas talks about poverty and the corporate takeover of education. Edith Harold Caperton is going to talk about constructivist learning. She actually published the book with Seymour Papert. Um, some of you are going to know her. On the 14th is our first virtual book club meeting on uh, Seymour's Mindstorms book. This should be a lot of fun. If you're interested, go to bookclub20.com and you'll find more information on that particular event. Uh, Jay Cross then talks to us about informal learning. You can see the rest of the schedule there. I won't read through it all, but lots of fun coming up. If you've missed any of the shows, they are all recorded. There's a particularly bad recording, I apologize for this, of the show with Richie Norton on the power of starting something stupid. Uh, somehow his audio interfered with mine. He sounds great. I sound terrible. You can ignore me. The recording is well worth listening to just to hear him. But do do get past the first few minutes where you may be fearful that it's going to be terrible. This is a chance for those of you in our studio audience to indicate where you're listening from. So look for this, the icons to the left of the map. You're looking for the star icon. Double click on that and then click on the map. Feel free to shout out in the chat as well. A little bit of geographic diversity. It's always fun. And you can keep doing that or keep indicating in the chat and talking to each other while you move on. If the chat gets busy, it's often easiest to actually pull it out uh, from that small container that it's in. So just double click at the tire, click and hold at the top of that box and drag it out and then you can resize it. Or you can look for the little menu that allows you to detach the panel and you can go through that same resizing wherever you're coming in from or if you're listening to the recording, we sure appreciate your taking the time to do so. There is a Mighty Bell space for this session. Mighty Bell is the content and curation project from Gina Bianchini, who is the co-founder of Ning. I do consult for Gina, so there's full disclosure there, but I've created a space for this interview. You can follow up, put resources there, talk to each other, and the like, and that's listed in the chat. It's also on the original blog post for the show. Chris, um, this was a really sort of profoundly moving book for me. I'm so glad to have gotten the chance to get to know you a little bit by by reading it. Um, can you tell me what the subtitle means, Protecting Kids' Inner Wilderness? No, it's inner wildness. But, but there's a link to, to wilderness, which, which that's all right, but I, <laughs> that, that was, I, 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 I I created that construct carefully and deliberately. You know, calling what 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 I mean by inner wildness is children's inner spark. 
you know, you, I, I just didn't want to use the word soul because it's been overused and it's, it's, a, it's a loaded term in, in so many ways. Same with the word spirit. You know, a lot of those words that, that re refer to kind of our, our inner essence, what, that, that which makes us, you know, who we are, I, I didn't work. So I, I had to come up with something else. But, but in choosing the word inner wildness, I, I wanted to draw a parallel or a connection between inner wildness and outer wildness, you know, as in wilderness. So. You, you you misspoke in, in in a you know kind of a in in a, in a good way because you were you were picking up on my other meaning. That's giving me more credit than I deserve. I just misread the word there. I had it written correctly. Well, you talk later in the book about the you know the possible confusion with Lord of the Flies, and that was actually sort of something I thought of too as I as I just thought of the word wildness. I also thought of where the wild things live. Um, but essentially, you're talking about this desire, an innate desire to sort of resist the control of others, right? Well, that's that's part of what our essence does. I mean, you know, uh, we, we we each of us has a, a you know a, a very strong inner drive to, to to be who we are, and. I just believe that that's that's the way it works, and I, I'm not alone. I mean, I I've always believed this. I think you know, going back to my childhood, but but certainly, if you look at the ancient Greeks, they had the same idea. So I, I didn't invent the idea. It's an old idea. The ancient Greeks called this notion, you know, that they just had the idea that that every soul, every every soul. You know, we're we're all born with souls, each of us, and then the soul comes sort of accompanied by a guardian, along with the soul. And the guardian's job is to—it's not not quite the same idea as guardian angel. It's not about safety. It's not about protection. It's about keeping our souls on track, so that we fulfill the purpose or purposes. You know, with which we came into this life in the first place. So I'm getting pretty mystical and philosophical here at this point. But but the, but the Greeks were very clear about about that idea. They they called that guardian sort of spirit the daimon. And and I I really I I just updated the word. I didn't want to use their word, so I I, I created my own term and, and ended up calling it inner wildness. Well, there is this sort of it, question that we have about the balance between uh, our innate tendencies and culture, right? And Lord of the Flies is maybe not a bad way to kind of frame that discussion because Lord of the Flies comes out of a certain cultural perception of what we would be like without civilizing influence. And it was uh, really revealing to me to hear somebody who's had a lot of experience with children say, I don't agree with that. What would your criticism be, or how, sort of how would you respond to Lord of the Flies? Well, I think one one of the most important things to realize is that the author of Lord of the Flies, William Golding, was the principal of a Church of England school, you know, in in more or less Victorian England. So he was dealing with an incredibly strong sort of Hobbesian cultural bias. You know, Hobbes talked about life being nasty, brutish, and short. And the the Puritans and the, the, the Puritans that came over that fled England because they were too weird, you know, to be in England, that fled that came over here and settled in Connecticut and Massachusetts and so on. Those those early Puritans and Calvinists who started the school system essentially in, in, in the United States in the, in the, in the 17th and then you know early 18th centuries. I mean, they literally believed that children were the devil's handiwork. I mean, that's a direct quote from some of those early, early church leaders in this country. So, 
you know, ah, that's 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 just where Golding was coming from. That's that's that was in his DNA. This 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 prejudiced view towards children, and uh, I, I just that's not my experience. I've I've I spent 35 years teaching in a school where children had an immense amount of freedom. And we trusted in children's essential goodness. And, and we believe that children, and even young children, are, are, are sort of innately disposed. You know, they're predisposed to be responsible, to be sociable, to want to do the right thing, to, to, to want to, to, to learn, to want to excel. And so on, and, and and I can report after 35 years that it's you know it's really true. It's uh, incredibly true. Children are uh, they're born essentially good. Things get in the way of that goodness. Things go wrong. Children don't get what they need as as you know as infants or as little children, and you know they become defensive. They become angry. They become unhappy, and their natural goodness, you know, it gets blocked, certainly. But what we found in our school is that, that, that when we could help children, when, when, when children came to us and they weren't happy, we could work with them and work on what was causing their unhappiness, solve the problems, and then when they became happy, they, they, they were capable of completely being responsible, self-directing beings. And then, of course, plenty of kids would come to us, and they were already happy. You know, they were the, the fortunate kids who had parents who nurtured them in the right amounts and in the right ways. And you know, Does that make sense? It does. And we're going to get to dive into several aspects of that during the interview. I really am anxious to have you tell a little bit about the school. Um, I, I want to talk about sort of how you kind of create that environment. Um, you know, maybe some of the the tendencies that lead us toward being controlling instead of supportive. But before we get there, uh, um, why this book at this time? Why are you sounding an alarm right now? Right. Yeah, that's a good point. The, the the very first sentence in the book is childhood is in trouble, and it is. Um, you know, it's a long story. There's, there is, I mean, the, 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 what I tried to accomplish in the book was, was to follow this thread. What, what's happening to childhood, from where I stand, is, is that it's, it's, it's coming, and children are coming under, ingre uh, under increasing degrees of control from the outside, from you know, sort of every dimension of their lives. And then that's that's what I try to do in the book is follow that thread of control from 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 childbirth even I, I you know my wife is a, a home birth midwife so I have a very good window into the the realm of childbirth and and what how, how childbirth works and and the way that childbirth the way the way the birth experience itself impacts a, a, you know a, a new a new life. And so I actually begin with birth, but then you follow that thread into early childhood and in, into into parenting patterns, and then you follow it into school and you follow it into society and and all of the ways in which modern society is sort of closing down on children and taking away their the, the opportunities for them to you know be themselves to to explore to to have their own. You know, I would say wild experience. That's that's not that, that that they're creating themselves, their own authentic experience. It's 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 really in so many ways disappearing, and and we're starting to notice. I mean, the book now the book's been out a number you know several years, and I'm I'm pleased to note that that since I started writing the book, there's a much greater awareness of this problem, and people are starting to talk about it, and you see articles in the media about. How, how little, you know, the obvious things like how little children go outdoors anymore, or the, the, the problem, the incredible problem of childhood childhood obesity, which is very 
closely related, which is a sort of a medical expression, a medical symptom of the kind of problem I'm, you know, I'm trying to, I'm trying to bring bring attention to. You know, there's there's a lot of stuff out there now about that and so on. So it's, it, it's, I'm glad that that we're starting to notice, but I still, I'm not impressed. I mean, I still think most of the the trends are still in terms of children and and their their inner wildness. They're they're still heading in the wrong direction. So I'm really glad you bring you brought up the. Um the, the birthing process or um, giving birth, right? Because this wasn't something that occurred to me until I really, uh, you mentioned it several times in the book, and it does two things for me, one of which is it kind of provides an example that I hadn't thought of before, of the degree to which fear leads to a control or a set of processes that actually end up leading to um, you know, potentially an arguably worse conclusion than um, if if more childbirth were natural. But also, it's kind of this constant reminder of the degree to which this isn't just a youth problem. This is also an adult society issue, right? Absolutely. I mean, that's 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 where you look for the origins, certainly. Because it, will, it may surprise people to make this connection with childbirth, can you just describe briefly uh, sort of what's happened uh, with childbirth and how that's a parallel, um, sort of based on fear and then and then sort of these methods of control? Yeah, no, I think it's a great little example. I mean, it's a, it's almost a, it's almost a template that that just keeps repeating itself through every stage of childhood thereafter. But, but so what happens with birth is because of our, and this is, I'm going to have to resort to a whole lot of oversimplifications and generalizations here because we don't have much time, but because we're so risk-oriented now, and especially the medical profession is completely risk-oriented and we're, we're just, it's all about preventing every possible risk. Um, and reducing every possible risk. You know, it's a it's a fear-driven process. When most women go to the hospital, they're in labor. They give themselves over to this, you know, medical model, which then sets, you know, then has the goal of, you know, preventing every one in a million bad thing from happening. And 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 women, unfortunately, then just sort of give themselves over to that process and and they get hooked up to monitors and they get you know they get give they're given medications and da, 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 whatever and they they just they just give themselves up and 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 long story short the impact that that has I mean it has a lot of impacts on the mother for one thing she's completely giving up her own instincts and her own autonomy and the kinds of things that my wife as a midwife is is com is completely try to engage the mother and, and my wife knows that the, the mother herself has all the wisdom she needs to, to to guide the process and control the process assuming it's a normal pregnancy there's nothing going wrong um, but but as far as the child goes the baby the newborn if they're born in the hospital under these conditions and their mother's probably been heavily medicated or at least mildly medicated and then the baby's taken away from So it looks like Chris had a bandwidth issue and got logged off. Peggy's indicated she had trouble logging into that, so it may not have been Chris's fault. I'm sure he'll log back on. While he's gone, I, I'm going to describe this a little because it's interesting. It, it, this is a theme that comes out through the book, the, the childbirth theme, which was a surprise to me. Uh, I didn't expect it in this particular book or in this line of thinking. But essentially, for all the precautions we take, uh, and the interventions, we have still some of the worst mortality rates in the industrialized world in the United States. And there, you know, the connection being that because of the fear and and the, and the being risk averse drives us in a certain direction, we end up getting the opposite result than the one we want. So um, while we wait for Chris to come back, um, has anybody in the chat actually read the book?
I, I, we're going to get more into some of the things that I think are specific to how we have taken away childhood. Um, oh, that Chris is back, so let's get Chris back as a moderator. Chris, you should be able to turn your mic on. You, your internet connection dropped or something happened, but we think we have you back now. Just click on that talk button again at the top left. Oh, I heard it got the talk button. Hello? You are. You're Hello? back. I didn't know to hit the talk button. I mean, we were gone for a while, but now I, yeah, I got to hit that talk. We, we were, yeah, so here. I'm back. Okay, so um, I, I really, that was really uh, mentally challenging in a good way for me to kind of make those connections. The other way in which, in, in not just the, the sort of the risk-averse nature of, child, of um, childbirth and then the sort of the ending results for it and the connection with ad, of adults being in the same kind of a culture. The other one that occurred to me that childbirth also seems to reflect or represent are the degree to which financial interests end up driving the system. Is that fair as well? Yeah, I, I think I think so. Yeah, it's, it's not it's not simple. There's no sort of linear way to explain the whole thing, but but it's it's definitely a factor. Well, certainly medical solutions that don't involve a profit are often not the ones first promoted right? because the system is driven based on revenue and cash flow and the like. Um, and, I'm, and I'm assuming that you know hospitals, doctors and the like don't make as much money through midwifery or natural birth practices. And we don't have to dwell on this, but it was interesting to me. Yeah, yeah, but I just think the main thing is is the fear. Then you've got hospitals don't want to get sued, so they're going to take every possible precaution to make sure nothing goes wrong. And 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 what that whole process does is it it just takes the control away from the mother. The mother gives up her control over her own birth process and turns it over to this medical model, and it doesn't always end well. Or that you, or the baby loses out. There are just certain key things that then the baby loses out on, and and then I think you just see that pattern repeating itself. The same thing tends to happen with education. Parents, you know, and again, I'm just I'm generalizing, but but so many parents just turn their children over to school. At age whatever, it's it's time to go to school. The children go to school, and and again this. The educational model is very similar to the medical model. It's very control oriented. It, it, the, the educational model isn't based on this idea that the child, children themselves, know what they need. That they have this inner direction. They have this inner drive to to find the experiences and the challenges that they need to, to learn what they need to learn. The, 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 the standard educational model says, no, 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 kids don't know anything. And, and we need to educate them. Here, here's this curriculum. Here's this plan. And, and kids, you know, we've got to move kids through this plan so they get the education that they're supposed to have. You, do you see? It's, it's, it's the same. It's the same. It's deja vu all over again, as Yogi Berra used to say. So how do you help parents especially and maybe you can talk a little bit about the Albany Free School in this regard, overcome those fears. Like I can tell you rationally the likelihood of my child getting abducted is extremely low, but I still have difficulty letting her go out and do something independently. How do I overcome that tendency to, to use the opportunity to control? I think each, each of us just has to become aware of that tendency. We, we have to understand that we're all being so driven these days by the perception of fear. And it's nobody's fault. There's no conspiracy. It's just, it's more than anything, it's just the media. It's, it's the 24-7 media. You know, when something bad happens to one person anywhere on Earth, within minutes, we all know what happened. And it didn't used to be that way. We didn't always used to know, you know, back in the 50s and the 60s, whatever, you know, you go back far enough and bad news traveled very slowly. 
and we weren't aware of all the terrible things that were happening to this person or that person you know, around the planet. But, but anyway, now we are. And, and so the fear is very understandable. It's probably inevitable. <laughs> but at the same time, we're all conscious beings. And, and, we, and we can become aware that, that, that there's this perception of fear because we hear about something bad happening to a child in California, you know, a child being kidnapped or whatever. And we can consciously say, okay, but that, that was like, you know, the, the chances of that happening to my child, you know, that whole thing of, you know, it's, it's the same thing. You, you have to go through that when you get onto an airplane. And you have to say to yourself, well, okay, you know, I, it would be more dangerous crossing the street, you know, crossing Main Street right now. I'm taking less of a risk than, you know, the, the odds are greater that I'm going to hit, get hit by a bus crossing Main Street in my hometown. Than, than the odds are of this plane crashing. I mean, we say these things to her, otherwise we wouldn't get on airplanes. So I think parents have to do the same thing regarding parenting. And it's tough because it's our children and the, the biological instinct that, you know, that evolution has so deeply, you know, woven into us to, to protect our children at all costs. You know, it's powerful, but it's still possible. We just have to, this is anything, we say, now, you know, wait a minute. Yes, there's this perception, but, but the truth is, you know, I live in a safe neighborhood. My child is a smart kid. You know, and, and, and we, you just have to take that leap of faith and still trust that you can let your child out of your sight and go off to a friend's house or ride, ride their bike across wherever and, and, and know that it's going to be okay. It's just harder, you know, it's, it's, I'm not saying it's not a greater challenge than it was when I was a child. My mother didn't think twice about letting me, you know, whatever. But it's still possible. The world hasn't changed, in other words. It's just our perception has changed. And so the challenge is greater for parents to take a deep breath and really think it through and, and let their kids go. Let them, let them go out and explore the world and, and have their own experiences. Let them take you know, reasonable risks. So let's talk about what some of those things would be. So what were what were some of the things you really wanted to make sure you what were the opportunities or environments you wanted to make sure you provided for youth at the Albany Free School? A very we're an, we're an, we're an urban school, so a particularly key area was making sure kids got a chance to get out into nature. And I, and I think that's becoming more and more important for, for all urban children. That I, I think na the connection with nature, and that's where the indefensive, that's where the inner wildness thing, you see, I, I was trying to draw that analogy between inner wildness and outer wildness, and the, the, the importance of them being connected, and, and outer wildness feeding inner wildness. It's just so important for children to be in nature as much as possible and to have an experience of, of, of real nature and not just the nature channel. You know what I mean? Kids need to be outdoors. If possible, they need to be in the forest. They need to be in you know, truly natural surroundings. If, if, if the best one can do is the city park where there are just squirrels and birds and you know, whatever, I mean, that's, you know, that's not bad either because there's still dirt to dig in and you know, worms and, you know, there's, there's lots of good stuff in any, in any good city park. But, but that contact with nature is big. And, and then underlying all of it, it, we just believe that it's important for children to, to have the sense that, that they're in charge of their own lives, that, 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 they, that they, in fact, know what they need and that they know how to go in the direction of what they need. You know, that, that they are their own experts, that they have what I, the way I put it in the book is that, that children have their own, and again, I, the, the Greeks had this very same idea, that children have their own inner guidance system that works incredibly well most of the time, given, given the opportunity, you know, given a chance to, to exert, you know, to, to practice, to, to use it. But, 
again, there's what I'm saying, what's happening with modern childhood, and it's, you know, this is not news anymore. So many children's lives are, are so managed. You know, every minute of so many children's lives are just, they're already spoken for. There are very few minutes in a child's day where the child is deciding, well, what do I do now? And what do I do next? You know, and those decisions are being made for them. Will you quote at some length G. Stanley Hall in the book, whom I was not familiar with prior to, to reading it, but this idea that um, the transition from youth to adulthood um, is valuable and important, but this mistaken belief that predictability and routine would make that uh, easier. Right, that it, that it was somehow a better way to go, and then you have this great quote from Ida Lashan. I don't know if I'm saying her name right. Where you know the genuine growth requires failure, so you know it's a mistake to do that kind of planning. So when you say you wanted to make sure the kids knew that they were sort of in charge of their own lives, that doesn't mean they're not going to make mistakes, right? Right. They have to make, but we we learn from mistakes. Evolution learns from its own mistakes. I mean, that's just, that's probably the most primary learning mechanism of all, making mistakes and then learning. Yeah. Children need to be able to make mistakes. Mistakes are okay. Mistakes are healthy. Mistakes are necessary. Yeah, and, and we just, so little, you know, the children have so little opportunity. Everything is so managed. Children just don't have that many opportunities to learn from their mistakes and learn learn on their own terms. You know, I, 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 drew, I drew that analogy. You know, I went into the, you know, children in sports and the whole reality nowadays where children don't play sports on their own anymore. They only play organized sports that are, which are fine. I mean, I played organized. Organized sports are wonderful, but but they only play Little League Baseball. And then there are coaches. And then as, as soon as a kid, you know, the, the, then these coaches are constantly telling the kids what to do. And, and if they even start to make a mistake, then con the, the coach just jumps right in and says, no, no, you've got to do it this way. This is how you do it. And, and the, the child has no, and it wasn't like when I was a child, and, and we just played <laughs> baseball on our own. And yeah, we made all kinds of mistakes. We, we dropped the ball. We didn't hit it. You know, whatever, but 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 we just kept playing, and we learned. You know, we we just day by day we we learned to, to correct the mistakes we were making, and we learned on our own. And it, it doesn't mean it's it doesn't invalidate having a coach come and point out to you, no, this is a better way to do this. This is a better way to catch the ball, or this is a better way to hit the ball. That's that's a very valid thing, but but if if the child or the person has no innate ability to learn on their own. I, I would even say then that the co it, it, it kind of it, it, it gets in the way of the coaching process. There, there's going to be a you know first things first. We we every every each one of us needs to we need to learn how to you know we need we need to learn how to learn that that fundamental mechanism and it's not a mechanism but that fundamental process has to has to be fluid. It has to be, you know, really well oiled and working. And, and then the add-on of teaching or coaching or getting input from the outside. Then that's great. Then it's then you're off to the races. But if if you as 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 the individual haven't laid down your own foundation first, it, it kind of invalidates the help you're going to get from outside. I don't know. Does that make sense? I, I get a little bit too. All makes sense to me, but for, you know, again, we're int introducing the audience. So, um, there, you tell briefly the story of Henry David Thoreau uh, and his short tenure at a grammar school because the parents felt he was too lax and needed to be uh, exerting more discipline. And this is from the 1800s. And I thought, you know, this is. Um, this sort of thoughtful approach that that you're bringing us to and thinking about youth independence and self-direction and agency and and their um, sense of making their own decisions feels like very much an age-old story. 
And one of the things that we've talked about on the show before is the degree to which more thoughtful narratives or understandings typically don't tend to become the mainstream because they're not simple. So, so, and obviously the Albany Free School and, and many other schools have provided a variety of forms of sort of student independence. Is it the case that this will always just be a secondary narrative, or can you see a way in which a culture or society could actually adopt the deeper thinking here as the primary way of thinking about education? Yeah, there's always hope, <laughs> and and I, I I won't ever stop hoping, but. You know the, the the cards are so the, the deck is so stacked. Uh, we are all just you know this is back to my whole reason for writing the book. There's, most of us are just so programmed toward you know dependency and from you know from the very beginning it's just it's just so tough. There's 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 very little. In the society at large, that that supports, you know, sort of genuine, you know, genuine autonomy. I, I'm, I, I want to be more optimistic, but I'm getting too old at this point, and I, I've seen too much, and and uh, I, I think the hope, you know, I, there's there are plenty of hopeful, you know, there you look at the homeschooling movement, and the fact that, that the number of homeschoolers is actually continuing to rise even though the birth rate at this point is declining. So that, that's a pretty, there, there are apparently over, it's hard to count homeschoolers, but there are well over two million homeschoolers in this country. And the number is, 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 is growing even though the number of school-age children in the country is starting to decline because the birth rate has has leveled off and is starting to drop. So that's, you know, there's millions of, there's a lot of families and a growing number of families in the country that are that are looking at the educational process and saying, no, wait a minute, we're not just going to turn our kids over to the school system and, and let whatever happens, happens. No, we're going to, we're going to take control of this process ourselves as a family and and so on. So there's. So I don't want to get too negative or too cynical. There's. There are a lot of hopeful things that are happening all the time. Chris, I, um, it felt to me like there was a, a little bit of a tension in the book. Um, and the Anne Dillard story brought it out for me in one regard. So uh, this was about her growing up and sort of working on things and interests of her own and her parents appearing to sort of purposely choose not to get too involved so that she would not be constrained to only be thinking or working on things that got their approval or their interest. At the same time, I felt emotionally like right. that story was a little bit of, it was hard not to feel like the parents were indifferent or unsupportive. And if, so it felt like to me like there is this tension right. between freedom and support. And how Good do you balance you. that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Now, a lot of people, there's a real generational divide there. When I go around and give talks and so on, younger generations of parents, they have a hard time with that. They they see Annie Dillard's depiction of parenthood as, as or, or description of her parents as her parents being, you know, too too distant, too, you know, too uninvolved. And uh, that's very interesting. You know, parenting, like everything else, parenting evolves. And, and nowadays, Parents are way more, uh, you know, way more, or most parents, many parents are way more involved with their children uh, than in my generation. It's been a pretty marked shift, uh, you know, between the, the last two generations. So, um, yeah, I, I just, and it's not up to me to, to tell any parent how they should, how they should dance the dance of parenting. But I'm 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 actually writing a, a an article right now for an English magazine. It's called The Mother, and I'm calling the article "Over Attachment Parenting" because I, I see in some cases where parents, out of that desire, out of that reaction to not have realizing they weren't close enough to their parents when they were children, 
they've kind of the way it so often happens, you know, we, we bounce to the other extreme, at least for a while. And now we've got too many parents that they're overattached, that, that that they've made children too much the center of their attention. They've gotten too involved in their parents. And and that's what I think Annie Dillard was was trying to say is that she didn't need her parents to validate her experience. Her experience was, was hers. And she was even grateful that her parents didn't, you know, kind of step over her boundary and get involved, you know, and start kind of living through her experience. They were respectful of her experience being her experience. And that was a very important point. But it, but I recognize that it's, it's, that's really hard for people today, especially young parents. It just doesn't, they don't see it that way. They, they see it as as too much distance. Chris, is there an additional complexity here that some personalities are going to respond to that independence differently than others? Yeah, I think so. I, I think that's definitely another another of the many layers. I mean, these are very complex things we're talking about. It's hard to you know, we're just I'm just gonna make trouble in this little bit of an hour that we have here. <laughs> It's, 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 co it's complex. Well, it's just very layered, complex stuff. Not simple at all. Well, we're going to try and get a little bit of simplicity here. Uh, there, there's a lot that we're probably not going to have time to cover. It's so worth reading this book. And um, the, the chapter on solitude for me was incredibly moving. Uh, and we're probably not going to get a chance to talk too much about technology. But we got a question in the chat. Um, from Lori about practical applications or things that teachers could do. And I, I know you're not oversimplifying, but you do give some steps, especially that parents can take in the book. If we were to kind of brainstorm now things that teachers could do who were not at a free school or a democratic school or an alternative school, can we, could we produce a list of things they could be thinking about or working on? Sure. I mean, I think, again, I haven't, you know, I, I can only go so far here because I never taught, I have never taught in a conventional setting. I've spent 40 years teaching, you know, sort of outside of the system. So I, I can't speak from experience. I, 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 you know, in a certain way, I regret that. It's, I think it's, it's only when we can speak, if, it's only when we can speak from experience that we can speak with any real authority. I mean, that's what I believe. But at any rate, I, but, but I know teachers, you know, that are that are in con conventional settings, and I and I know they're able to do really pretty amazing things sometimes. Um, if, if at least they're in a good enough situation where they have a little freedom and a little autonomy, and nobody's just breathing right down there. So yeah, there's things teachers can do. I, I, it's, it's little things or big things. Um, we start with homework. I just think you know, it, it, introducing introducing as much choice as possible in whatever given situation a teacher is in, there, there's always room to introduce some choice, always some, um, and then let kids themselves decide that you, you, you can, with, with, you can turn your classroom pretty quietly, you can turn your classroom into a little sort of democratic community. You can get the kids together, you know, once a day or once a week or whatever, there's, there's always a point where you can get the kids together and say, okay, let's, Let's talk about things. Let's let's talk about how it's going. Or let's let's you can begin the year with well, what what kind of rules do you think we? You know, let's let's make some rules. Let's make some rules for our room. Let, let's let's together let's decide the kind of rules we need to you know have this be a good place and be a safe place and da da da. -da. Um, that, that's actually a, a huge step to take, and that doesn't mean that the teacher isn't giving away his or her authority. The teacher's still in control, and the kids will still know the teacher's in control. But, but that's a huge step to say to the children, "Okay, we're all in this together, and, and this is your this is your little community. And how do you want it to be? And, and what what ideas do you have for this being, you know, a, a, a good, happy place where everybody's getting what they want? That's, that's powerful, and, and I know teachers that do that. And, they have to keep it local, obviously, just within their own classroom. They're not going to change the rules of the school or any other thing, but 
it's it's pretty profound. You can, you the, the teachers can help with you know they they can they can take care of conflicts in that same way. They can just bring the kids together instead of just sending the child out and you know you know go to the principal or you know whatever. If there's if two kids get into a fight or an argument or something. There, there are points in the day where the teacher can pull the kids together and say, "Well, let's let's talk about what happened. Let's let's," and they can have a little session. There's still room, at least in some schools, there's enough room in the day where they're not having to to just keep teaching to the test to do that. And um, I, you know, teachers can still get kids outside of the school. There's still money in some schools, at least. There's a budget for you know for taking field trips for for going places, for getting out into nature. Um. So I wrote down uh, bringing 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 the arts in as much as possible, and enabling kids to be creative, and, and handle the, the curriculum in a creative way that, that's imaginative, where that involves art as much as is just filling out worksheets. And all those things are are very possible, and each 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 one of them is very important. Yeah, I wrote down um, less homework, <laughs> uh, time for thinking. Right? Again, my my love of that solitude chapter, getting outdoors, like you had said. Peggy says different homework. Yeah, if teachers can get away with less homework, I don't I don't know how much freedom they have anymore on that score. But but I just don't. That's where I just don't know. But yeah, if they can, if they can pull that off. Definitely less. And then my number one here was this huge point that you make toward the end of the book about paying attention to our own inner wildness. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's I'm about to go up to, to a, a really nice progressive school in Maine and do a day long workshop with the faculty and you know they've read the book, and I don't. I don't need to. That that that's a school where kids get to go outside and they get to play, and it's a private school, so it's not. They're not bound. You know, they're not. Con teachers aren't just teaching to the test all day. Their teachers are able to be quite creative, and the school's out in the country, so they they have a beautiful campus with. They're not far from the ocean, so they're. They don't, I don't need to convince them that. You know, they they pretty much. I'm preaching to the converted as far as. The basic ideas in the book about childhood, but but I want to spend the day with them talking about what are they doing to nurture their own inner wildness, and are they doing enough, and are they paying attention to that? And because I I think that's still especially people especially people in the helping professions. This isn't new, but but those of us in the helping professions you know have a strong predisposition to not taking care of ourselves, right? We're so busy taking care of someone else. We're so busy being a good teacher or a good doctor or a good minister or a good nurse or whatever that we ignore ourselves and we don't nurture ourselves. And of course in this in this case I would say we we, we don't nurture our inner our own inner wildness. We don't we don't spend enough time in nature or we don't spend enough time living in an imaginative way or Expressing ourselves creatively, or you know, whatever, because we're too damn busy teaching and whatever else we're doing, we, we inadvertently end up ignoring ourselves. So yeah, it's huge, and and I would always talk to parents. That was that was always a topic of conversation when I was at the schools with parents. Was so, what are you doing to take care of yourself? I, I know you're, you know, you're you're a great parent and whatever. And so, how about you? How are you doing? That was so important to to, uh, to to cover that ground and 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 have that conversation. But but with teachers, it's key. I mean, I always say that the, the bottom line of teaching is a teacher can't take a child any farther than the teacher has taken him or herself. Right. So very important that teachers take care of their their own inner wellness. It seems like that's both uh, an opportunity for modeling and an opportunity for truly understanding kind of how you need to be fed or helped when you are 
making those kinds of choices or self-directing or um, fulfilling yourself in those particular ways. Yeah, totally, totally. And I, I think especially with teachers. I, I think the danger is with teachers, if, if a teacher, if teachers aren't taking care of themselves, for whatever reason, and I don't, I don't mean to judge, but, but if it's just true that they're not, then when they go to school and they're in the classroom and they're with their kids, there's just not much chance that, that they're going to have any awareness of, of their kids on that level. It's just so much more likely that then it's just going to become all about the curriculum and making sure the kids are ready to take the tests. And you know what I'm saying? That the, just sort of the life just is so much more likely. The life is just the real juice, and life is going to drain out of the process. And you know, school is just going to turn into a training session, and and it's going to end up you know squashing the the child's inner wildness for sure. So it's it's really important. So yeah. we're in our last ten minutes. If you have a question for Chris, please feel free to put it in the chat, or you can raise your virtual hand. It's the third icon over in the moderator, or it's right in the participant box. It's a hand icon. You can click on that, and I'll give you the microphone. Um, if you've put a question in the chat and I've missed it, please post it again. I apologize, but things go by fairly quickly. Um, we, we can't drill down on all aspects of the technology piece in a few remaining minutes, but can you give us some sense of why technology is such a mixed bag for you? Yeah, well, I, I think it's a mixed bag for children uh, for two reasons. It, 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 it definitely separates or tends to separate kids from each other in, in a physical, embodied, face-to-face -face way. It, it reduces the intimacy and immediacy of, of their communication. And same with nature. It, it just tends to keep kids indoors. And it keeps kids in front of screens. Uh, to, you know, to a... To a to a frightening degree at this point. I mean, the number of hours that the average child spends in front of a screen or multiple screens has just become, I don't know, just, it's, a, it's an astronomical. It's, it's, I think it's over 10 hours a day at this point. If, if you count the multiple screens, if you add up the multiplicity of the screens. So those are, those are just, those are my two biggest problems. There's nothing inherently wrong with the technology. There's, there's a lot of beauty to the technology. And, there's a lot of amazing aspects to, to electronic communication that, that, in a sense, bring people together. But that there's two ways that, that create a separation that I would say kind of starve our inner wildness. And I'm giving him microphone privileges. I don't think so. So Richard, go ahead and click on the talk button at the top left. And you should be able to turn your mic on. There we are. Hi, Chris. Um, just Hi. Like Thanks for tonight. Uh, eons ago in the 70s, I, uh, I studied a little bit with Kirschenbaum and Simon and values clarification up in Jay, and very, very similar things. I, I think what we have done, and also in terms of technology, is we've lost the connection between knowledge, studying for these tests, the facts, and context, how it fits into the human experience. Back in the old days, we learned by apprenticeship. So everything I learned, whether build a cathedral, plant a seed, was in context of dad or mom or, or reality. Um, I'm teaching elementary school, by the way, the town next to Sandy Hook. And oh, wow. I move, I'll have a worksheet on Venn diagrams. And of course, it's, it doesn't relate to anything. And you can just turn to the class and say, how many people like chocolate cake? How many people like vanilla cake? And the class goes crazy. And then you ask, what's common between the two cakes, even though they're totally different? And they get it, and it's alive. But if you step off of the worksheet, now I'm doing this as a sub, doing some experimentation. 
you can see it unravels the teacher because they're away from, and in, the, in their fear of testing and everything else from no rich child left behind. Right. They're they're locked into the knowledge, but not into the into reality how it relates to reality. The other research that's coming out of New York City from STEM is uh, minority youth that are making it into college from STEM is not from the STEM curriculum at all. What they've learned is from the mentoring. Those teachers that teach STEM also mentor. Right. So yeah. we've cut out the human context in our obsession with curriculums, and, and the textbook people are, are big time, and the curriculum people are big time to blame on this. Oh, that's it. Educational industrial complex. I mean, I'm sure it's there's a lot it, of money it just out goes there. Back to, yeah, it's the 12th century classroom. But the internet and collaboration on the internet is bypassing that. I know. It's that's there's the whole. I mean, there's technology. You know, it's it's just it's a double edge uh, always. It's there's there's power to do good and there's tremendous power to do evil. It, it can just go either way or both ways. Right. Thanks, Richard. Great hey, work, Vinny. I've given. I've given you the microphone, Denny. You can turn your mic on by clicking on the talk button at the top left of your screen. Hello. There you are. Hello. Hi. Okay. Um, hello. Uh, thank you, Chris, for the talk. Um, I am like I have a question. I'm, I'm traveling by the idea of free children. So, if you could elaborate more on, because of your experiences, 35 years working with with children, what is your idea about free children? If the so if they really, uh, so I'm troubling the idea that are they really free, or what makes them free, and what are they free from what actually? When you know, or the idea of freedom for children, I think because also I'm, I have the questions when they call the free school, it's uh, how I'm troubling the idea. However, a person be ever free, or the idea that children ever be in the situations that they are free, something like that. I hope I make sense. I think so. Yeah, I mean, that's there's a powerful distinction, though, between freedom from something, you know, like freedom from oppression or freedom from slavery or freedom from a bad situation, or freedom to or toward something. And in my school, we're much more oriented in the freedom to as opposed to freedom from you know it's it's not our school isn't focused on you know keeping having kids be free from authority or free from you know being told what to do or whatever it it just means that that children are free to direct their own lives they're they're free to explore. They're free to make mistakes, which Steve and I were talking about a little little while ago about how important it is for children to make mistakes and then learn from those mistakes without someone just jumping right in and either either preventing them from making the mistake in the first place by completely managing their their activity or jumping in to fix it right away and say, Oh no, this is what you should have done which is what happens you know, like in children's sports nowadays, when children play, play Little League baseball, there's an adult is right there to say, oh no, this is what you did wrong, and this is the right way to do it. Let me show you. So this, 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 children just need freedom to, you know, to, 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 to live, to, 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 to be themselves, and to, Figure out what you know what their life is about. You know, I'll get more you know philosophical here. You know, figure out why why they're here, what what life is really about, what what their purpose is, and so on. That that requires freedom. Does that make sense, Chris? It's a, a delightful hour. We always finish on time as a courtesy to our guests. Good. Um, the, the book is In Defense of Childhood, Chris Mercoliano. Thank you so much, Chris. Oh, my pleasure. I'm sorry the time went so fast. 
<laughs> it's a good sign. Thanks for coming, Chris. Thanks, everybody, for being here. The good questions and the good chat. Yeah, that recording will get posted uh, within a day. Um, don't miss uh, shows coming up next week. Paul Thomas on poverty and the corporate takeover of America. You have a great learning and I'm glad you think so. Thanks again, Chris. Right. Delightful you, to get to know you. Good, good. All right. Thanks, everybody. Take care. Bye-bye. And bye.